Welcome to Smart Construction, a podcast covering the latest trends and developments in construction contracts. This podcast series is for anyone in the construction industry who is interested in learning more about collaborative contracting as opposed to the traditional, more adversarial approach. I'm Alison Bearpark, construction partner at Ronan Daily German and your host today. Collaborative contracting can result in a more efficiently delivered project for less. Currently in Ireland, many contractors are using collaborative construction techniques to enable them to manage projects far more efficiently. Building materials are more economically sourced and combined project meetings between contractors and subcontractors are taking place. This collaborative approach, however, is not necessarily being driven by the form of construction contract in place between the parties. And despite there being a number of more collaborative contracts available, more often than not in Ireland, the traditional forms of contracts are used by the parties. In the next few episodes of our Smart Construction podcast, we will take a look at some collaborative clauses used in partnering contracts. Partnering contracts are more collaborative than traditional contracts and include options such as information modelling, key performance indicators and multi-party collaboration. One commonly used partnering contract is the NEC form of contract. A few years ago, before I joined RDJ, I was a legal advisor to a contractor during the development of a pump storage scheme in South Africa. This experience was a unique one in that I saw firsthand how a contract can impact the way a project is run and the costs that are incurred by both parties. Today, I'm joined by Joe Salmon, Claims Director at ABB. Joe has extensive international experience and previously worked as a contracts manager on projects in South Africa and Southeast Asia. He's very familiar with the practical impact of collaborative clauses in a contract. Joe, welcome to our Smart Construction podcast. Um, the first question I want to ask you is, and before we get into the forms of contract and, and the different collaborative provisions that could be used, how else can clients incentivize or encourage collaboration on a construction project in your experience? Um, client collaboration uh, is a difficult one. It's uh, something that obviously the contractors and um, employers are not particularly used to. But it is something that is happening more and more often. And it's a great thing, I believe, in the construction industry. Um, collaboration really should start um, at the very earliest process, which uh, can start even pre- uh, in pre-qualification. So if you have um, contractors and employers having discussions even before a contractor hands in a bid for a project, so you get into the qualification of ideas of um, how you're going to run the project and even what form of contract even if the, the employer hasn't finally decided on it. Obviously, then you've the form of contract that the employer chooses and the contractor then gets and can get involved in the particular conditions as all employers tend to use nowadays. I think that's a and that's a really good point, Joe. Particularly in the public sector, because they obviously don't have the same leeway in terms of the form of contracts that they use. So it's a good option to incentivize clients to apply for a particular job if one of the pre-qual criteria is to have shown that you've collaborated on previous contracts. So I think it's it's a good it's a good option for public and private sector clients to to, um, have that incentive there right at the outset. Have you ever um, seen that used on any any of the projects that you've used where you've had to sit down at the pre-call stage with the client or a potential client? 
Yes, we have. Um, Pre-qualification uh, is quite normal in international large projects where uh, contractors definitely need to prove that they can handle the size of the project, either the technical complexity of the project or that they actually have the finances in place to be able to uh, complete the project. So pre-qualification, we've we've um, I've been through this process quite a few times. Um, unusually, uh, on two projects, our um, potential client invited the bidders to come and discuss things with them. Uh, one of the projects was in West Africa uh, for a power station, and it was a private client uh, who brought in all of the bidders. There was three uh, pre-qualified bidders, and they brought them all. Um, into uh, meetings pre-award uh, of the contract and sat down for a couple of days and we went through a, a question and answer session where we went through each element of the contract. Uh, if there was any technical qualifications that, that we had and that we wanted to include so that they could be sent out for all of the pre-qualified bidders to bid on. And it was an excellent process and I believe it was a very valuable one for the um, clients themselves because they would have gotten a better feel for the project not alone had they employed their own engineers to design it but now they had a better um, feel for how the contractor was going to carry out the project and also they they interviewed the potential uh, contractor that they were going to use on the project so that was an excellent process which I believe should be used more widely. Yeah, I think that sounds like a great, um, a great option. And it just kind of sets the scene right at the outset that collaboration and, and, and discussion is the way the project is going to be run. And another one that I've seen that I think, you know, is a good option to um, incentivize and, and encourage collaboration can be early dispute resolution mechanisms. Um, do you think that this would, you know, have you seen early dispute resolution clauses work, such as project boards? What's your opinion on, on those sorts of provisions? Dispute resolution, I think, is one of the best things that's ever come into a um, construction contract. Too many times, um, especially if, if people remember the old FITIC 87 contract, which was a, a disaster because it, you just ended up in dispute all the time. To have a third party independent, you know, even if it's generally for a standing DAB, um, either a dispute adjudication board, dispute avoidance board, dispute resolution board, there's many names for them, but they all provide the same service, which is dispute resolution and our dispute avoidance, if even better. So someone will say comes to the site, you appoint a third party independent who's an expert in either law or construction or both. Or you can have a three man, a three person DAB. Um, so they generally arrive on the site uh, and meet with the parties every quarter um, or every three to four months on a larger project. And you sit down and you explain what's going on. You give them feedback as to where both of the parties are. And if there's any potential disputes arising, you know, if anybody's feeling slightly aggrieved that they haven't had a, you know, a fair hearing from the other side, they generally air their views there. And it's a bit like a mediation process where you sit down and uh, with the other side across the table over a cup of tea, cup of coffee, and you, you talk things out and you get the feeling of 
of where it would go if you did take it into a more formal dispute uh, procedure and you, you, you get a feedback immediately from your DAB. I think it's a great process and it, it keeps everyone honest. Yeah, no, that's great. And I know that there's lots of forms of contracts that already have that, that in place. It seems from your experience, any, from your experience anyway, that it, it's something that, that does work and it helps to avoid, hopefully, disputes or if it can't avoid them, may help to resolve them. So just moving into the, the provisions, collaborative provisions, Joe, there's certain contracts that are seen to be more collaborative than others and some of these provisions you know wouldn't would 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 be ones that we've seen let's say in the NEC or other sorts of forms of contracts what sort of collaborative provisions have you used on construction projects mainly it's probably NEC which is the most collaborative of the project for or the, the contract formats at the moment although the new FIDIC one seems to be tending toward heading towards that direction as well so uh, from the NEC, we're all familiar with the risk register um, and the early warning mechanism that's that's uh, aligned with that. Some of the contracts I've worked on recently have been FIDIC-based contracts, but they've incorporated a similar um, mechanism into that contract through the particular clauses using um, impact notices or whatever naming you want to give them. But the risk register is a really good one and a very good example of how you know, as construction professionals on both sides of the contract, uh, your ultimate goal should be to complete the project within time and on budget. So if you spot problems, you're supposed to bring these up, discuss them and and uh, between the two sides and possibly a third, if you if the engineer gets involved, you you come up with proper solutions. And these these are the things that are. Uh, where construction contracts these days are heading. And I think it's a great idea, the, the risk register, early warning mechanism from NEC. Um, on a couple of projects, I've used them where they've been great because, you know, everybody's thinking proactively. You're trying to save the project some money. There's no blame attached when you raise these issues at the very start because all you're interested in is problem solving. However, I have been on one project where the risk register was actually used quite poorly um, on a couple of occasions where the employer named certain issues uh, and brought them up through the early warnings and then placed them on the risk register. Then halfway through the contract, a similar situation as to what was described early in the contract popped up and the employer then used that to time bar the contractor saying, you know, you should have known about it. I warned you a year ago. And this is, you know, this is, I don't think is, is the correct way to manage that that particular tool that has been given to us by NEC. Yeah, the risk register to me, when I look at, I mean, you know, again, you know, we're talking about the NEC and it's a good reference contract because it's always seen as the more radical of contracts in terms of bringing collaboration into the construction industry. But there's obviously other forms, as you said, the new FIDIC forms and even there's bespoke provisions that you can draft. Um, so, you know, um, parties could use one of the more traditional contracts and put in a set of amendments, which included maybe a clause for a risk register. But but using the NEC, the this, this introduced the risk register in the NEC 3 and on its drafting, it seems to work, you know, it requires the parties to give the early warning notice to another party if there's any matter that arises which could increase the price. 
delay completion or impact the quality of the works. And then the parties have to engage in in an early warning meeting in order to resolve their differences. And they have the obligation to cooperate in order to make proposals and, and address the actual issues that's being raised. So the early warning meeting as the contract, you know, on the face of the contract isn't to allocate risk between the parties because the idea is that the rest of the contract does that. But, you know, from what you're saying there, Joe, is that that's not always how it works in practice and that sometimes you might have the employer or the client using the early warning meetings to to prove a, a claim or disprove a claim that a contractor might make later on. I just wonder, is, is this particular type of clause one that really requires underlying cooperation between the good parties and good management for it to really work rather than being something that has um you know a bit more teeth in order to incentivize the contractor to really collaborate absolutely as with everything in nec3 it relies on the honesty and the goodwill of both parties um, the project manager and the contractor really need to buy into the into the form of contract and work with it as opposed to the old adversarial um, them versus us type of attitude that comes that comes from the old forms of contract. NEC is a is a mindset. Uh, I actually love it as a contract. I think it's a great contract when it's run properly. Um, but uh, as both you and I have worked on on particular projects where it hasn't had the same level of cooperation that it deserved, and um, especially with the risk register and with just any anything that's collaborative on that contract it needs both sides to buy into it fully so that you can you can work it properly when you say having teeth um the, there is the part of the contract where uh, the project manager in in allowing for the pricing of a compensation event is allowed to take into consideration that the contractor should have given an early warning. So I think that's only fair. I mean, if a competent contractor um, does not give an early warning when he should have, then yeah, okay, uh, I think the employer is, is allowed to rely on that. And that is a little bit of teeth, but it's it's really just common sense on how you're supposed to handle these things. Yeah. And do you think that that provision then is almost, you know, while it's meant to to help the parties and solve problems, is it almost just rife for disputes? Because then you go, well, you know, if we had a given an early warning, it doesn't necessarily mean that there wouldn't have been a compensation event or that the compensation event would have been minimized by this much. And there's so many questions that come out of that, isn't there? So for a mechanism that's designed to keep the parties... yeah on the same page and keep the project running it you know it almost you can see you know when you talk about it in the detail like this that it, there's a lot of flaws to the risk register in a way well there is but again as with everything else as i say in the nec3 contract i haven't used nec4 yet uh, nec3 relies heavily on the goodwill of both sides and you know you're supposed to help each other out and obviously the earlier you raise an issue the hopefully the cheaper the solution will be or the easier the solution will be um, and I suppose that's the thought process behind it and again you know it relies on both both parties having uh, a willingness to finish the project as quickly and as cheaply as possible yeah 
Yeah. And, you know, you say the NEC4 there, Joe, and it's actually, you know, when you see the, the scale, the collaboration scale of the contracts um, in the NEC4 and the option clauses, the, the, the scale of collaboration goes up a little bit further. Uh, and you see that there's more incentive on a contractor to work collaboratively with the client. So, for example, you would have the, you know, key performance indicators. Has this, have you used KPIs before, Joe, on projects? And what's your experience with KPIs? I have. I've used a, a form of them, um, uh, specifically on this one project that pops to mind in Southern Africa, where it was a drinks manufacturer. And obviously, then you've got multiple trades. So we, as the main contractor, we were the civil contractor. Uh, we were incentivized to uh, have certain elements of the structure complete so that the other trades could come in and start on time and obviously for the employer or the the client they they want certainty and the other contractors are obviously going to be beating their door down if if they're delayed by months because they, they want to get onto the site they've got equipment that they need to install their services that they have to bring in so yeah the kpis on that particular project were excellent and um, they were a, a full incentive for us they were bonus payments, um, but there was also, uh, uh, as with uh, all nice things on contracts, there's also a bad side. There was the carrot and the stick. So if we didn't achieve the certain the dates, uh, we were penalised. So there was delay damages for each each of those uh, dates as well. But in the main, everything worked quite well, and um, it certainly incentivised us. You know, if if you saw yourself falling behind on an intermediary date or a key date. Uh, we definitely put time and money into it to, to try to try and achieve that, and because the, the the bonuses were quite substantial, so they were it was a, a good way to work it. What better way to incentivize someone to to get something done is to have a a pot of cash at the end of the job. It's always a good incentive. Interesting as well, though, that on that one there were delay damages connected with them, because I think with sometimes in KPI clauses you don't necessarily see the 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 delay damages and the stick as well sometimes it can just be the incentive payment and and if you don't meet the um date or the incentive then the payment isn't made and and, and that's it and you just lose out in the payment rather than actually have payments deducted so it's interesting that it can work both ways yeah they had a they had a graduated scheme on that where you started with we'll say on day one you had 100 percent bonus and then each day it dropped down to zero and then there was uh you started into the damages from that date and then they worked themselves up to a hundred percent as well. So there was a period of time, um, you generally two to three weeks for each of the dates where you had time to achieve what you were trying to achieve with a, a commensurate um, fine or bonus, depending on whether you made the date. And I'm just looking as well, I'm going to take a look at the, the clause in the NEC, but obviously there's many different contracts that have KPI clauses in them. And in your case, Joe, there was a bespoke KPI clause in there. But option 20 in the NEC4 deals with key performance indicators. And um, that states that the parties list the contractor's targets and what they call an incentive schedule. And I suppose quite simply, the contractor is paid the amount stated in the, stated in the schedule if the target is approved on or achieved and, and the payment is made when the target is met. And as I said, there's no delay damage in this particular provision. So um, the, there's nothing deducted from the contractor if the date is not met. In option X20 as well, 
it states that the contractor needs to report regularly to the project monitor in relation to the performance against each of the KPIs. So the schedule, the incentive schedule will state when the contractor must provide those reports to the PM. And if the forecast shows that the contractor will not meet the target stated in the target stated in the schedule, the contractor then has to, has to submit proposals to the PM for improving performance. So it's interesting actually the approach here again that the NEC takes in that they are saying that there must be continuous monitoring of the contractor's performance as against the KPIs rather than, you know, let's just list the KPIs in the contract and if you meet them, great. And if you don't, sorry, you don't get the payment. Um, so, you know, that that's something interesting that I hadn't necessarily seen before. And um, it's, it's, I suppose, one of the project monitoring tools that the NEC likes to do. Do you think that that's a good step, Joe, to, to include in a KPI clause to, to have this continuous monitoring of the contractor's performance? Yes and no. Uh, from a contracting point of view, in the main, the contractor is in charge of his own time. He's given a deadline and it's up to him to achieve it uh, by any means possible. When you get employers and engineers uh, involved in that process, then it becomes a little bit muddled and muddied and you don't know who's in charge, uh, who who's meant to, to actually schedule the works themselves. So from that perspective, I, I'm not a huge fan of that particular clause. But from a, I can see from an employer's perspective, it is good because it gives them a certain level of control. And again, it'll be the carrot and the stick with them. You know, they can say you're not going to get paid if, if you don't achieve your targets. And I want to know how you're going to achieve those targets. Um, it's a bit of a tendency in the modern uh, contracting world for employers to start interfering in contracting where they're not specialists in it and I don't believe they should become involved to a greater degree than is already allowed because when I say that's already allowed if you look at the normal FIDIC contracts they've always had a certain element of engineers input into scheduling if you look at the, the programming clauses in FIDIC they do allow for um, the engineer to request a new program if they believe that the, the program, program on site isn't reflecting what's actually happening, the, the current situation there. So it, they've, they've always had a certain input into programming, but fundamentally, that is a contractor's tool. I, I don't think it should be interfered with. So I, I'm not a huge fan of that particular KPI clause. Okay, yeah, and interesting what you say about the programming because that's often a contentious issue between the project manager or the engineer and, and the contractor. So do you think that that should be something that just sits with the contractor and they're left to manage the program? Yes, I do, because you're employing the contractor to do a job. So you tell him, you give him the specification or the design or whatever you've given him, depending on the form of contract, and you tell him, I want it done by X date. So if you are now becoming involved in how that is being done and the timing of it, I believe you're in you're you're messing with the the balance that's been there for years. A contractor is is brought on site to build things and to to do certain things that he's good at, and the engineer is there to monitor that, and the employer is there to to pay for it. I don't think they should be interfering in each other's specific you know, pots of responsibility. And it comes back to risk apportionment at the start of a contract. Risk apportionment for time is generally with the contractor. So why should the employer start interfering? 
Yeah, it's, it, you know, and to be, I'll put my devil's advocate hat on and from the client's perspective, it may be that, you know, in the ideal world, the contractor is the best person to program their own works in order to achieve the completion date. But if that starts to slip, you know, the, the client needs to get involved and, and again, have that continuous monitoring to make sure that the works are progressing and to make sure that the, there's a mechanism in there where the contractor explains why things are falling behind or what they're going to do to achieve certain key dates. So, you know, it's, it's when the contractor isn't doing ideally what he's meant to do or is slipping behind his program. And um, that, that, that sort of those sorts of mechanisms allow the employer to get involved because the delay damages, which is the only real mechanism or remedy for the employer wouldn't really be adequate. And what everybody wants is to deliver the project. No, absolutely. I 100% agree with that. But it becomes down to then the increment if the contractor slips by a day. And again, being devil's advocate, if, you know, when when does the employer step in or the, the project manager step in? I don't know. It's a slippery slope for me. And as a contractor, and I've been the employer as well, but more recently the contractor, I believe that responsibility should lie with the contractor and it should remain with the contractor. That's a, it's, a, it's an interesting point and one that probably merits further discussion. And um, on the KPIs, Joe, you know, how is, is one of the pitfalls in the KPIs is if they aren't properly defined? Oh, God, yeah. The, there you're, you're heading for disputes immediately if you don't have a proper definition because everybody needs to know what you're heading for. You need to know what your end game is. And how do you pay against a KPI if it's not properly defined? The contractor is obviously going to claim it as early as possible. And then the employer will will not want to pay if, if he believes the KPI has not been achieved. So, yeah, that's down to drafting straight away. That has to be done properly, clearly, concisely and discussed as early as possible just to make sure that both sides understand exactly what they're aiming for. And Joe, there's other collaborative options such as early contractor engagement and multi-party collaboration and information modelling. Have you ever used any of these? I have. Um, I've been involved in two projects where there's been early contractor involvement. The one I've, I've previously described, that was the West African power station where we were brought in. And as I say, we had two days of talks with the with the client and their team of lawyers to go through and there were some engineers involved as well to go through the technical aspects. The other one is a more recent involvement where there was a particular issue on uh, another power plant, but this one in Southern Africa, and three bidders were brought onto the site early and given what they called early works orders. So they were given certain portions of work which really only lasted between three and six months. So it gave them a feel for the conditions on site because it was three international contractors and to give, give them an idea of, of the site conditions. And then the, the employer brought them on specifically for the reason of trying to get a, a better informed price, not one that's generally going to be our, he wasn't particularly looking for one that was cheaper, but it was definitely just the site conditions, the employment conditions, and, and how 
that the people will learn from their early works order and then get involved in the tendering of the, the main piece of, of work that was for that particular project. It was an interesting one. It's probably a one-off. I don't think I'll ever come across something like that again. Um, but it was interesting, and I think it was quite a good idea from the employer's perspective. So it worked in that situation, did it? Initially. <laughs> After that, it didn't work very well. <laughs> but that was, an, that was another issue. That wasn't to do with the early works order or early involvement in the project. It was just a difficult project. I think it's a really good option for, for some of the larger projects to have that early contractor engagement. And we might actually look at these clauses in another episode and similarly with the multi-party collaboration, which again kind of further incentivizes parties to collaborate together. And um, the multi-party collaboration in particular means that each of the parties involved in, in that partnering contract have the same clause in their contract and it requires them to all collaborate with each other in order to achieve not just the client's goals but also their own goals so it's interesting because there's a lot of different options in terms of how to bring collaboration into a project. Joe, what in your experience is, is the difference between collaborative clauses working and not working? I suppose I'll come back to NEC again it, it depends on the attitude of the parties when they go into the contract the, itself if you go in with an adversarial attitude, you know, where you're 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 just going to look for your claims or you're just going to look for your entitlements, or if from the employer's perspective, if all you want to do is just push all the risk onto the contractor, it collaborative contracting will not work. It's all about risk apportionment. You have to look at who is best placed to take on certain risks. If you go in with that good attitude, you know, collaborative contracts really do work. As I said, NEC is my favorite form of contract with the right players involved. I think it's a, a superb contract where you have proper teams on both sides. It does take quite an amount of contract administration, but it is a very good form of contract. And in the long run, I believe it would save people money if they used it correctly. So where it hasn't worked, again, it, it comes with you walk into a contract with the old fashioned adversarial approach of I'm going to do the minimum and I'm going to get paid as much as possible, it, 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 that which isn't a good attitude to go into any contract with. But unfortunately, there's quite a few people out there with that. So, you know, really, it is people who are the, the center of all of this, because it is interesting how you might have the same contract on two projects but they just work in completely different ways and it's, it's how they're administered. It's really the combination of everything because I think the contract certainly helps, but then, you know, the contract isn't out there doing the job and, and collaborating with people. It's just the tool that helps the people to put that collaboration in place. Certainly, I know from speaking to you before as well that, you know, other, other ways to incentivize parties to work together is having things like a, a strong leader and, um, you know, good communication between the parties and regular meetings. So all of those things help to air any issues that might come up on a project. Absolutely. Is there anything else? Talking is the best thing you can do on any, con on any construction site. If you have an issue, you talk to people and you make sure that that isn't used against you very quickly. You know, sometimes you can sit down and talk to people and all of a sudden it, it's used against you in the next meeting. That's not the way for things to work. If people use, and you know, it doesn't matter what form of contract you use. If you're a good construction professional, you're interested in finishing the project and doing a good job. That involves 
good practice, no matter, as I say, no matter what form of contract you're going to use. So the early warning risk register from NEC, that can be adapted and can be used, even though it's not formally adopted into, you know, the other forms of contract, you can use it. And I, I've seen it used to good effect on FIDIC contracts, you know, where you, the, the, the contractor has brought up issues early and they've been discussed and uh, dealt with then at the, you know, the normal monthly meeting. One, one contract in particular, which was a FIDIC contract, sorry, I'm just trying to remember, it was a FIDIC contract and we had procurement issues. I believe there was a, a strike at the factory where we were, where something was being um, manufactured. So it was going to delay uh, a particular piece of equipment arriving on site by six to eight weeks. And it was a critical piece of equipment. So we told the engineer as soon as possible. A meeting was called with the employer and the other contractors and we got a workaround. So everybody sat around the table. We rescheduled some of the other works within the project and it turned out at zero value which was a, a brilliant piece of collaboration on a FIDIC contract so you know it doesn't have to be formally part of your NECs and things like that but a good attitude from both sides going into the contract look you'll always have disputes but that's why I'm such an advocate of the dispute resolution being formalized very early on so you know the rules and you have your third party sitting there to discuss things with you and to tease out a few issues if necessary. But yeah, keep talking to each other and don't don't take it personally. Yeah, I think that's some really good advice, Joe. And the, the collaborative options that we discussed today, they're not novel or new and, you know, they've been widely around in, in the construction industry, but they're maybe not utilized as, as much as they are uh, or as much as they could be. And clients may want to consider using these sorts of options in their forms of contract. So either using the more collaborative forms of contract or as you say, Joe, inserting these provisions into um, a schedule of amendments while still using one of the more traditional forms of contract, um, which I think are still so widely used because they're familiar to the parties. So you can, you know, take for example, the risk register, which is something that's been around for a while now, but um, in your experience, Joe, it certainly sounds like it's something which which can be used as as an effective tool to keep the parties talking, keep the meeting, all of that good stuff that that you know allows and fosters a collaborative working relationship on on a site. And I think that the construction industry is, you know, while probably always thought of as being a traditional industry, it's it's adapted so much in the last few years and in one of our previous episodes we spoke about building information modeling and how technology is just you know becoming so advanced now and there's robot dogs on site and you know even with the coronavirus this year I don't think a few months ago we would have known that parties to a construction contract would be having their site meetings on zoom or some other online forum so it's interesting to see that there's, there are all those advancements in the industry but the contracts themselves probably need to catch up a small bit and um, these provisions are there and they're available and I think it's just becoming familiar with them and, and using them. So Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. That was really interesting and great to talk to you. Great, Alison. Thanks a million. You've been listening to Smart Construction, keeping you informed of updates in the construction industry. The information provided in this episode was correct at the time of recording 
However, we recommend consulting your regular or DJ advisor to ensure no changes have occurred since then. Alternatively, you can contact us via our website or dj.ie. We're here to help.